Welcome to the Talks at Google podcast, where great minds meet. I'm Mistral, bringing you this week's episode with the co-star of Bravo's million-dollar listing New York and sell it like Sirhant, Ryan Sirhant. Talks at Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place. Every episode of this podcast is taken from a video that can be seen at youtube.com slash talks at Google. In this episode, Ryan discusses his new book, Sell It Like Sirhant, how to sell more, earn more, and become the ultimate sales machine. The book is a lively and practical guide to sell anything and up your business game from one of the top realtors in the world. Moderated by Googler Paul Dara, here's Ryan Sirhant, Sell It Like Sirhant. Thanks. Welcome. Hello. How's work? <laughs> this is a cool place. It's a, not a bad spot. We have our own real estate, kind of. Yeah, you're the real estate I'm guy. The real estate guy. It's exciting to interview uh, the, the other real estate guy. I love doing deals with Google people. It's great. You always know they can close. You know? That's right. Which is really important to me. Well, it's, in a, big, it's a big talent pool. We have 10,000 Googlers in New York. So I know. I don't, I don't think you've sold to all of them yet. No, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. That is the goal. So why don't we start, in the book you talked about your childhood, childhood growing up opposite to the guy you see on TV. And I thought that'd be a great place to start. <laughs> great. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, a lot of people, most people know me from Millionaire Listing New York, which started in 2012. I was cast on it in 2010. How I got cast on that is a totally, it's like book number two. Um, I, but I wasn't, you know, I, I think I was kind of like the opposite person when I was a little kid, right? like the anti-salesperson, which was a big push for me to write the book. Like I didn't necessarily write it for great salespeople out there who are crushing it and at the top of their class, right? I mean, I think those people should also get it, but I really wrote it for the people who were like me, who were super shy, introverted. I moved eight times before I hit fourth grade. Like I was really overweight. I had really bad self-confidence. I just like theater. My parents made me play every single sport known to man, hoping I would get over it. Um, you know, uh, it was, you know, my whole family's in finance, everyone's very business oriented, and I just wanted to do like theater and come to New York after college, uh, which no one approved of whatsoever. Um, and then I ran out of money, right? I mean, that's like kind of classic story. I moved here in 2006, I went to Hamilton College in upstate New York. I was a theater major, also English lit, because my parents made me. And, um, and I gave myself two years on like summer savings and it lasted me two years. And I ran out of money and didn't know what to do. And it was either go home to Colorado and paint fence for the rest of my life, or which was an actual summer job I had, painting wood fence. There's a lot of it in Colorado. Um, or figure out something. I had a friend of mine who was like, listen, don't be a waiter, don't be a bartender, get your real estate license. The market's insane. This was the summer of 2008. Your timing was impeccable. Yeah, right. yeah, I could not tell the future yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and as a real estate guy for Lehman Brothers, when it went under, yeah. I know what your first day of work was like. So you started the day Lehman collapsed. Yeah, September 15th, Yeah, yeah 2008. Big, it's a big which for a lot of people was a really awful day. For I, me- I was one of those. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, it's tough. I had a lot of friends who worked at Lehman, um, you know, and, but for me, I had no money. Like I. I was either figure out this real estate thing or go home to Colorado. And I got my real estate license. It didn't really all make sense to me yet what was really happening in the world because 
If you're living in New York City trying to be an actor, you're not watching CNBC every day and you have no money. So you don't watch the markets, you don't really know. And I just thought real estate was the hardest thing in the history of the world. I just figured that everyone in New York City lost their jobs all the time. You know, those first two years, I mean, every client I would get, they would lose their job in 2008 and 2009 and they wouldn't be able to afford apartments. So in hindsight, it was the absolute best time for me to start because every broker was getting out of the business because they all called the end of the world. Um, and for me, I was there to kind of like pick up the pieces and just sort of figure it out as I went. So you talk about improv yeah. as a training ground. Yeah. So spend a minute on that. Most important training I ever did to be a real estate agent was taking improv classes in high school and college. And I still make everyone who works for me take improv. Um, because it is the most important thing you can do as a salesperson is learn how to listen and learn how to act on your feet. And those are two things that a lot of people think they have, but it is, it's a real muscle, you know, it, to be able to think on your feet and never use the word no is a really kind of hard thing to do. Because most people will say, um, like, right, or let me think. Right? That's, like, that's how we grow up. But to be able to say yes and over and over and over to whatever your client is saying it was like my, really, really helped me a lot when I first started. Um, and how many the, people have taken improv in the audience? Okay, so we have yeah. some work to do. It's important, especially because, yeah, exactly. Because it, it really, it's really scary, especially as you get older. I was just fortunate that I took it when I was younger and then thought it was fun. But once you get older, you're more self-aware and you don't like to embarrass yourself. And so that's actually when it's more fun because it's just ridiculous to watch people. Um, and you should just go watch improv classes just because they're funny. They have them everywhere and they're like five bucks or 10 bucks. Um, and you just create situations. And in sales, that's what you're doing. You're negotiating people's emotions and there's no script for that. You're figuring it out as you go. And that's what improv is has taught me and taught the team. I think the other big observation you have is that uh, in real estate sales and TV, the first impressions are literally everything. Yeah, and if you're not careful, they're also your last impression, right? So give an example of where that, that moment occurred where you were at risk of the last impression. Um, probably when I met you and I didn't look up from my phone, so I apologize. <laughs> Uh, I was just in the middle of something. Well, he was eating Raisin Bran as well. Also that. You guys have food here, which is great. I'm a real estate broker. Every time I see food, I'm like, ooh, it's gotta, gotta survive. Um, uh, you know, like just take it really simply, right? I, I didn't write the book for real estate agents. I mean, my life is as a real estate agent, but I really wrote it for like anyone who just wants to do better and do more. Whether they're selling, you know, digital advertising or they're selling themselves to their boss to get a bigger promotion or they're trying to convince their kids to go to bed on time, you know, or they're trying to pay down student debt. Like I wrote it for, for everybody, but put yourself in the shoes. Of, like you're walking into a store, right? And someone comes up to you and they say, or what do people typically say? Like, hey, can I help you with anything? And what do you say? No, thanks. Right? For the most part, you say, no, thanks, because you don't really want to be bothered. And it's a salesperson and it's like gross. Like, no, no, it's fine. I got it. I'm looking at shoes over here. Right? And then they'll say, like, hey, okay, let me know if you need anything. And then they walk away. That is every salesperson in every store in the entire world. So you have to remember that every client interaction you have is just like you'd be making a friend or meeting like a future boyfriend or girlfriend. I mean, could you imagine going into a bar and like tapping on someone's shoulder randomly and saying, hey, let me know if you need anything. 
Like, how do you think that would go? You could get super lucky, and they could say, actually, I do need something, and then that's a one-off deal. But for the most part, everyone's going to say, you were with me? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So for the most part, people are going to say, no, no, I'm okay, or that's weird, right? So that's a bad first impression, which is now the last impression you're going to have of that salesperson, right? A different way is to introduce yourself, okay? Introduce yourself and start with something super simple like a compliment, right? Most people think about the clothes they're putting on or think about their ridiculous mustache that they grew out to try to sell books or, <laughs> mm -hmm, true story, or, you know, something, Right? Or if they have a kid with them, you compliment the kid. Something small just to get them to smile and to start a positive interaction. I swear to you, it, it works every time. I've gone into stores like to buy a pair of socks. Someone has come up to me, introduced themselves, and complimented me on something, and I've left with like a canoe. <laughs> and maybe that's just because I'm gullible, but it also it works, right? You're, you're building that trust in that first impression, and you have less than 20 seconds to do it. Oftentimes, you have less than 10 seconds. Right? Every relationship, even with your best friend or your partner, started with like a 10-second introduction. And with the people you know that you're friendly with, it worked. Other people, it didn't work. So I talk a lot about how to make it work more. And then how about at the other end of the spectrum, the indecisive client? Because we all have indecisive bosses and associates. How do you manage the indecisive client? Good question. Um, there's, I broke down as much as I could. You know how there's like the six stages of grief and then like the types of tornadoes? Like I always, when I got into the business, really kind of thought of sales, like the six stages of selling, like what emotional clients go through. Because they go through their grieving period, like their denial period, their excited period, and you have to walk them through all those steps. And the best salespeople are the ones who can anticipate it, like an ER doctor. Like they know like when this next emotional phase is gonna hit, so you can prepare how your conversation is gonna lead into that moment, kind of like a psychologist, right? But people who are indecisive are people who are insecure about the decision that they're gonna make anyway. Like at the end of the day, a lot of indecisive people we know, they end up making a decision they're just really self-conscious or insecure about their intelligence or something, and you have to help them get comfortable and figure out how to get there. And a lot of it is just laying out options. So kind of the way I just talked to you about first impressions, and it could have been super boring, but I made it relative by talking about dating in a bar, and then people laugh, and they're like, oh, that is kind of the same way, oh, interesting. Same thing with people who are indecisive. You know, It's figuring out a way to make it relatable to them. And like if you have a client or a boss or somebody, you figure out what they like to do personally. So you track them on social media, let's say, and you figure out that they really like cats, okay? Or they really like golf, or they're really into the jets, I don't know, something like that. You try to, without telling them that you internet stalk them, you figure out in your conversation with them how to make whatever the situation is you're talking about relatable to something they really like. Like, you know, this is, you know, I understand you want to take your time, but it, if Sam Darnold had taken his time, you know, on his first game out, might not have won that first game, huh? And then that guy's going to be like, dude, you're a Jets fan? Like, I, I mean, sure. Yeah, now I am. Oh, crazy. Yeah, anyway, the real reason I don't want to do this is because of X, Y, and Z. Because now it's on a personal level. Now they're thinking about something they really like. Plus, you made it relatable. And it's just how you present that information versus that salesperson who just says, can I help you with anything? No. Okay, let me know if you need anything. Great. That's most people. And so you, you talk about the four tenets of work, the four W's. Yeah. 
So it's the why, the work, your wall, and the win. Yeah. Spend a little time on the wall. Um, so when I first got into the business, I had no boss. I had no mentor. I went to a brokerage called Nest Seekers, which is still there. Um, there's like 800 agents there now. When I was there, it was like 20 um, above Burger Heaven on 49th and Madison. And didn't really have a mentor. No one told me what to do. All the direction I was given was find apartments that are in other cities that look cool, post them on Craigslist, use really good pricing, meet people at Starbucks, take them to other apartments. Okay, That was the New York City rental broker way of life up until like 2009. Um, and so I, I didn't want to do that. That seems super weird to me. And I wanted to figure out how I was going to actually build a sales business and how I was going to build like a sales career and not just be someone who lived deal by deal by deal or somebody who woke up a year from now and said, wow, last year was great, but it was also the same exact kind of year that I had the year before and the year before and the year before. Um, and I looked at all the top performers in the business and all the top companies, right? Like all the Fortune 500 companies. And you know, they all had really, really strong through lines to how they figured out like what they were working against. Like what, like what's Google's kind of through line, right? They're trying to make the internet a better place, more searchable, all that stuff. Something like that, right? You guys would know better than me. Anybody, anybody want to cover the mission? Yeah, I'm sure it's out there. Um, and so for me, I wanted to figure out what, like, what's that thing that I'm running against as much as possible. And as an individual salesperson, it has to be something personal. So for me, the wall um, is that moment in the summer of 2008 when my debit card was declined at Food Emporium on 59th Street buying tofu, of all things. Uh, and I didn't know what to do and I really freaked out and I just took my card and ran out and jumped on the subway and sat next to some random person and just tried to hold back tears. Um, Cause that was the moment I was like, this New York thing sucks, I hate it, I don't like it, I don't wanna be here, I just wanna go home. Um, and then I decided to get into real estate and that's the moment I run from every single day. And it sounds kind of crazy, but everyone needs to have that wall, right? Maybe you work at Google, but before this, you did another job that you really didn't like, and you don't want to go back to that job because this is now super awesome. Do you have free cereal? Like <laughs> that other job is your wall. Or maybe you just love New York so much and you don't want to move home to Colorado to paint fence or whatever your story is. Like that then is your wall. Or maybe you were bullied in high school like I was, and you want to show those people who the fuck is boss. That's your wall. So for me, it was figuring out that moment on that subway, and I'll run as far away from that moment for the rest of my life as possible. And the others are really just trying to get clear with your goals. Like companies have goals. Companies have mission statements. Why shouldn't individual people have the same thing? Why shouldn't individual salespeople have the same thing? You should also have what your, your win is, right? That's kind of the mission statement. So for me, my win, but doing so like Sirhan for Bravo and then writing this book, I think that I'll always do real estate, but I really have found that like my passion is helping other people increase the quality of their lives through selling. Because selling is like the greatest career you could have because no one will ever take it away from you and you will never be unemployed, especially in a volatile work market the way we have it now. Like I right now am unemployed. I don't get a W-2, I get a 1099, I eat what I kill every single day. I'm a very successful, unemployed, employed person. And I, that's the greatest thing, because I get, I get fired every week. Clients fire me all the time. 
just because that's what happens in this business. But it's okay because I have other clients and they make up for it. I don't ever want to put myself in a position where everything in my life could be held by one place. And as a salesperson, you have that amazing talent to take that anywhere, whether it's here or somewhere else. So in the show, you parlay your real estate sales into supporting and helping people who are in different stages of their life and their state of kind of yeah where how do you pick those candidates and what's been oh. your greatest success in terms of individuals uh, they uh there was a casting process that bravo did i think they sent out casting notices everywhere um and then just got lots of submissions from people it was hard to cast because a lot of people because the show only made sense if i was working with really bad salespeople who were literally about to lose their jobs and then the business had to agree to go on camera. Like their families had to agree to go on camera. The bosses had to agree to go on camera. So there's like a whole process to it. So it was hard um, to find people that wanted to put themselves out there like that. Um, but I think the most successful person, I don't know if you've watched the show, but there it's kind of two. There was one guy who sold wine. Um, his name was Tim in Millbrook. And he let me know that he was a recovering addict like when I first met him which was really tough because he sold wine. But that was all he knew how to do. Like he, he got addicted to heroin outside Phoenix when he was 13, meth when he was 14, tried to kill himself when he was 15, cleaned himself up and sent himself into the army when he, I guess, was 17, did two tours through Afghanistan, and then came back clean, ready to go. Wouldn't go back home to Phoenix because that's where all his triggers were. Tried to get a job in New York, couldn't get one. Um, put himself through the New York Culinary Institute, but then couldn't get a job as a chef. And then a friend said, listen, I've got this winery in Millbrook, come work with me, sell wine. Had no idea what selling was, thought sales people were the worst people in the world, uh, like legitimately. And, um, and I helped him understand that selling isn't taking, selling isn't being greedy, selling isn't like, come on, come on, come on, just do this, do this. Like selling is assuring. It's not convincing. Selling is walking people through options so that they pick the best one for them and an option that they otherwise would have picked anyway, but they're just gonna do it with you and not do it online. Or they're gonna do it with you now and not do it later, right? Um, and so that was a good one for me, working with him. Cause he had a, like we secretly flew his parents in from Phoenix and he hadn't seen them since he got back from Afghanistan. Like the whole thing was crazy. Million dollar listing, very different show. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in a recent interview, you said that one of your core principles is for sustaining key relationships is actually knowing how to give before you take anything. Yeah. And I think you kind of spoke to that a minute ago, but if you, not that we're off camera, but if you were speaking off camera um, versus on camera, what would you like people to know about the reality, reality TV that they may not know? Millionaire Listing takes us nine months to film an entire season. Um, and it airs really, really quickly. So there's a lot of stuff behind the scenes that you don't see just because it's boring TV, unfortunately. Like I always wanna show like the deal stuff, the closing costs, the taxes, you know, all like the, like the crazy stuff that really drives us crazy. But it's hard TV to show. And there's three of us on the show. It's an hour show, which means there's 44 minutes or 16 minutes of commercials, which means each of us get like 11 to 12 minutes of airtime, and it has to be cut down into just those big moments. Get listing, figure out how to sell it, don't sell it, maybe sell it, little personal item, done. Um, but there's so much more that goes into it, right? Like I start my day very, very early and I try to start in the office 
to prep for the day ahead. And then I end incredibly late to clean up the previous day and then prep for my day ahead. Like my day starts the night before. And that was an important thing that I figured out when I first got into the business. Otherwise, like you wake up and you're scattered and you look at your calendar and you're like, all right, what do I have to do today? But by then, like your day has already begun and it's like you're late to the race. Um, but yeah, reality TV is fun. You know, it's been good for me. I was, I, I mean, I got onto that show by just like convincing them I was the greatest real estate broker in the history of the world. And I knew that they were from LA and they didn't know anything. <laughs> and they were like, are you sure? And I was like, yes, I am sure. I'm like, really? Because all these other brokers that we're interviewing, they don't know who you are. And I'm like, really? It's just because they're jelly, right? <laughs> and they slowly whittled it down and whittled it down. And I got to the point where I was like, just getting friends to help me with things and like trying to like, it was like, call, call me 50 times a day. Call me, call me, because I'm with the cameras right now. And they're still interviewing like 15 other people. And like, what am I calling you for? So they call me. They'd be like, hey, Ryan, you told me that. I'd be like, yeah, no, deal's closing. I'll call you right back. Boom. And the producers were like, this is the greatest real estate broker we've ever seen. Um, I've been doing it now for eight years, so I'm comfortable putting that out there. But, and then I got cast on it. And then that was like a, oh, all right. Now I got to figure this out. Right? My whole life has been just saying yes to everything and then having to just figure it out. So, which is a great lead into, you talk about when it's time to let the deal go and how to fail smarter. Yeah. I think that, uh, I mean, when I first started as a salesperson, I didn't let any deal go. Right, because I didn't really have a whole lot of choice. And some of my first clients were people I definitely should have let go. But it's, it's a time benefit analysis, right? You're never gonna close somebody who has a great personal relationship with someone else who does what you do. Like I, as many apartments as I would love to sell, there are always gonna be sellers who grew up with a real estate broker today or who are married to a real estate broker, or you know, who have some kind of personal connection, those are people that I, I need to really look at the time that I would put into that deal and probably decide, you know what, I'm gonna leave them for other people, it's okay, right? I'll live, I'll go find other people. Um, and then there are people too who are just completely irrational, unreasonable, and you know, those people you have to cut loose when they don't really move up that emotional kind of ladder that I talk about in the book. Like if they just stay on hysteric or you know, over-emotional or if they're mean. Like there's a lot of people in the world who are really mean and are belittling, especially in my business. I don't know what, how it is for you guys, but like it is really easy to be mean to a real estate agent, right? And it's easy to take out all your frustration on them, which is fine and I'm totally okay with it. And I get yelled at every day. But if that's their like status quo, then those are people that I need to let go just to say the negative energy, it's gonna affect me in all of my other deals and I don't wanna bring that into the rest of my life. So in the book you talk about Client X, which may not have been your hardest deal you've ever closed, but mm. it might be. So spend a minute on that because I think it's such an amazing story. Oh man, in the book I have to call him Client X for fear of my life. Um, and I say he's from Atlantis, also for fear of my life. Um, so client X was a guy who cold emailed me when I first got into the business and said uh, he'd like to invest money into the New York City real estate market. Um, would I be able to help him? Um, he would use real cash dollars and would need bank account help, okay? Uh, and I totally replied. And I was like, absolutely, I can help you with bank account help. 
And absolutely, we take cash money dollars. And uh, how much are you looking to spend? And he was like, less than 10 million. And I was doing like $2,000 a month convertible three rentals in the West Village to Jessica, Jessica, and her friend Jessica at the time. So like I, you know, uh, who were coming from Murray Hill with their guarantor father. And so a guy who all of a sudden just told me $10 million for over the internet, I was like, boom, jackpot. This is New York City real estate. And I got super excited. And then he wanted to talk on the phone. So he, had a, he was like a real person, sort of. Uh, and I just sent him a bunch of listings, because I didn't know. And he picked one at 45 West 67th Street, apartment 15 ABC. And I remember every address. And he said, uh, I would like that one. Make offer 8 million. And it was asking 8.5 million. And I was just like, holy mother of, I just, $8 million offer. This is what it is. This is, I am now the greatest real estate broker in the history of the world. <laughs> Uh, I asked him to send me a proof of funds and he sent me a DHL, right? Remember that? He sent me a DHL the next day with like a photo of an accountant with a letter that legitimately said, Mr. X does not commit to things that he does not commit to. That was his proof of funds. And I was totally okay with it. I was like, this looks good to me. Cash money dollars in New York City. Uh, and we negotiated this deal over the internet for $8.3 million. And I was immediately thinking about the commission in my head and thinking about how long I would be able to stay in my apartment with all that rent money and everything and craziness and taxes didn't even come into the conversation. Um, and then he disappeared off the face of the earth for like a month and he had had a contract and I had introduced him to an attorney and just never replied ever again. Um, but I followed up like every day, because this was my one big fish. No one else in their life had ever talked to me about spending that much money in an apartment. And then he eventually writes back, like a month later, and says, sorry, I've been a little busy. I'm like, okay, no problem. Uh, <laughs> and he actually signs the contract. And then he has to send a deposit. And then the deposit never comes. And now I got the seller freaking out, other brokers going crazy, and like months go by. So we have the signed contract, and it doesn't mean anything. And then uh, the attorneys tell me that what's basically happening is that this person takes a signed contract, and this happens all the time in New York City, and they shop it around the world. And they say, listen, this is this apartment. It's probably worth $10 million. I've got it for $8.3. Give me $20,000. Come in on it with me. And they'll sell the contract over and over and over to unsuspecting victims, and they'll steal people's money. So it's a scam. Um, and so then I was like, you know what? This business sucks. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm the best broker ever, but now I'm the worst one because I'm involved in some money laundering scam between some crazy person from Atlantis. Can't believe I responded to this guy. And I think it was like two months go by and then the attorney calls me and says, you're not gonna believe this. I just got an $830,000 deposit from Bank of Atlantis. And I almost had a heart attack. I was like, are we in contract? He's like, yeah, you're in contract. It's like, holy mother of God, $8.3 million for an apartment. I sold it over the internet. Um, and then there's this thing in New York City called a board package, right? You have to do an application. And then there's this thing called closing, which you have to do. Uh, and he vanished off the face of the earth. Stopped responding to everything for like six months, right? So imagine signing a contract for something and then disappearing for six months, okay? So now you've got different attorneys looking to sue everybody, but who do you go after, right? Now it's just about keeping that deposit and holding the deposit back. But I followed up. It's my whole life is follow-up. I write about it in the book. There's a whole chapter. It's really invigorating. Okay? <laughs> I will follow up with you until the day that you die. <laughs> I followed up non 
stop. Just checking in, just saying, hey, I'm, I know you're probably getting some documents together, still need to do this application. And then I had some genius idea to, because I looked him up initially and I'd seen that like he might be attached to this house that looked expensive in Paris, okay? Um, and so I sent him this email that said, hey, in total desperation, uh, I'll be in Paris tomorrow. If you want to meet you know, in person, we can go through the documents. And he wrote back in like one minute after six months of nothing and said, sure, 10 p.m. and gave me a location. And now I'm like, well, shit. <laughs> the biggest deal of my whole life that I still haven't done, now we've got to figure out how to do this. And so I used all the money I had and uh, got an Aer Lingus flight through Dublin. Uh, and then I think I took Ryanair, which was super fitting for me, <laughs> to Paris to try to find this magical person. All the while, like kind of telling my parents what I was up to, kind of not, because it's a little bit sketchy and probably really dangerous. Uh, and then 10 p.m. rolled by and the guy doesn't show up. I'm like crying in my baguette. And uh, it was like 1 a.m. because I had nowhere to go and I didn't plan on getting a hotel or anything. I just thought I'd like wing it, you know, and then just go right back to the airport. Um, and then 1 a.m. he shows up with like a line of people. So now I know he's real. Um, and all he really cared about was getting me drunk. And he just wanted to watch me drink. Um, and I was the opposite of who he was in every way, shape, and form. Um, and I drank a significant amount of tequila, and he like sort of looked at the papers a little bit. I got him to sign two things, and I would just fill out the rest. So I took it as a win, went back to New York City, uh, very sick, and then he had to come close, and he disappeared off the face of the earth again. But at least now I knew that he was a real person. And then to make a long story short, even though it's long, uh, he randomly one day, again, months later, so this is like a year-long process, says, I'm in New York City, I'd like to close. Like, are you crazy? It's, it's like 11.30 a.m. We, well, you can't just get a closing together, right? Oh, but fine, we'll figure it out. Because everyone was, they were trying to sue for deposits, it was crazy. It's like, where are you? Mandarin Oriental, went up there to wait for him, doesn't come down on time, finally comes down with like 15 people and this fleet of black Escalades pulls up outside the Mandarin Oriental completely tinted out and crazy. The minute that happens, I text my mom and I say goodbye. <laughs> right? This is again, like the only deal I've ever done other than just like rental deals on Craigslist with people that I'm like baiting and switching, okay? Um, the New York way. So uh, we get in the car, he's got like an, an espresso assistant, totally crazy, and I'm like, listen, Mandarin Oriental, 45 West 67th Street's right there. Do you wanna go do the walkthrough? I'm sure you're really excited about this apartment. He's like, no, 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 we go to JFK. Uh, so we went to JFK, and we went to the back of JFK, and we pulled up, uh, and there was this big 747, and he got outside, and he bought it, and he got back in the car, and now I'm totally confused. Now I don't really think I'm going to die. Now I'm just like, really, I don't know who this person is. And then we go back into the city, and he signs the papers, and he closes, uh, and all he cares about is taking a selfie with me for his BBM profile, um, if you remember those. And turns out that he prints about a billion dollars a month. Um, and he's like wealthier than Gaddafi and just wasn't concerned with this little apartment. And the only reason that he moved forward because he thought it was super amusing to watch me consistently, persistently follow up. <laughs> right? And the fact that I actually went to Paris and he knew it was bullshit, like he knew that I wasn't gonna be in Paris right, is one of the reasons he went through it. And since then, we've done like 300 million together just as a way to diversify and move money around. Every deal has been super painful. Um, <laughs> and that's, 
that's the power of yes and, right? That's, and it didn't take money of mine. Going to Paris costs money, but other than that, follow up, following up with items of value, like staying on top of him, everything. Every deal is a deal. You're just trying to see which salesperson is gonna quit first, right? Just like kind of every race. And I always equate selling to a race. Like you wake up every day. That's why I say ready, set, go all the time. Because my dad told me to say it every day before I leave when I was third grade. You know, before I step out of the house, before you cross over, one foot, ready, set, go. Because it sets your mindset up for running a race. You just have no idea what kind of race you're gonna run. It's gonna be a marathon today, it might be a sprint, and then it's a marathon, it might be hurdles, and then it's like a 6K, you don't know. But as long as you're prepared in that moment, the moment you leave your house, I'm gonna run a race today, and I'm gonna fucking win it in some way, shape, or form. It just sets your mind to be ready to go for anything, to say yes, and then figure it out. So, that's a, so before I ask the next question, if anyone wants to line up to the mics and we'll open up for questions in a minute, but it's a great pivot to the next question, which is explain your get FKD um, theory and yeah. why it's one of your most valuable secrets. Yeah. You're going through like the whole book right now, huh? Yes. <laughs> it was a great book, you guys. Literally. Uh, yeah, so FKD, um, again, I was on As the World Turns and got killed off, okay? That's where I made the most money before getting to real estate. Other than hand modeling, I hand modeled, I held cell phones for AT&T. They were everywhere, by the way. If you Google my name and hand modeling, it's awesome. Uh, I held Nespresso capsules like this. I'd have to like move the metatarsal of like my pinky. I'd have to get like hand massages and everything. Um, so that's my background into business. So then when I got into real estate, I didn't know all I knew was you post ads online, you meet people, you try to convince them to sell, to buy, to rent, and I wasn't rich, and I'm not from New York City, and I don't go to the synagogue. So, like, I, I'm like shit out of luck. Um, my nicest clothes were cowboy boots and khaki pants, right? And so, when I made that decision of, you know what, this, I'm going to figure this out, and I'm gonna move against the grain here in New York City, and, I'm gonna be the best broker ever. I gotta figure out how I'm gonna do it. I didn't know how to structure my day. And that was the one thing that really like, would get me depressed and like, would really kind of hurt me was, okay, I have one appointment at 3 p.m. What do I do the rest of the day? Like, what do I do at nine? What do I, do I cold call people? Do I ask people for help? Like, do I post ads? Like, what a, how do I structure my day? And I think people are creatures of habit. So I looked at big companies and I said, okay, every big company out there that's super successful has a CEO, a CFO, and a COO. I have no idea what they do. But for me, I think it's important that part of my day, I have a CEO brain on. So that for me was my finder time because I looked at CEOs and I said, they find business for the company to work on. Right, that's what they do. They prospect business for the company to work on. Yes, they deal with problems and all that stuff, but CEOs really, like they are there to move the ship forward and give the company a lot of stuff to work on. Okay, so from eight to 10 a.m. every day, I'm going to put Finder. And those are my hours where every day, now I'm booked from eight to 10 a.m. I'm not waking up with nothing to do until 3 p.m. Eight to 10, it's my Finder hour or two when I just focus on ryansirhantrealestate.com, like my own little personal business, and how I'm going to sell more, grow more, and brainstorm my career. And it's amazing if you just spend some time every day and just think about yourself that way and about your business and how you're gonna do better, you will come up with ideas that you never would have come up with just because your brain is capable of things that you just you just don't know, right? 
Um, Keeper was the CFO time, so that was like 12 to one, and I would just think about all the money I didn't have. And if I had like 10 bucks to spend that day, you know, I would budget because I knew it was important to invest back in your business. So I would say, okay, $10, that gets me how many stamps? And I would send out letters to one building that day, or it's gonna get me an extra latte and I'm gonna go to Starbucks and I'm gonna try to find pregnant women and sell them apartments because they need more space, right? Like that's my thing today. Um, True story, some of my first clients were pregnant and they needed more space. It's a real thing. Uh, And then my COO time was my doer time. So FKD, that was like the rest of my day. That's when you put all of that stuff into action. So that's when I was stamping things. That's when I was going to Starbucks. That's when I was doing the appointments. And I still do that to this day. Um, Now the times are shifted. Now I spend a lot more of my time in that finder time period than I do in the keeper and doer. Um, But it's important to think about yourself as an entrepreneur and as an independent contractor and as a salesperson, as somebody who runs a large company. Whether it's true or it's not, the only way it will be true eventually is if you think to make it so. Yeah. Great. Go to the uh, audience. So in Million Dollar Listing, you have uh, you know a lot of one-on-one interactions. Now, obviously, it's edited, and perhaps that's not you know how the rest of your day goes. But yeah. um, now you have a team of you know several hundred brokers. How do you manage them? Do you try and spend one-on-one time with each of them? Do you have lieutenants or other people? Like, what? How do you structure it? Uh, the team is sixty-two, not yet at a hundred. Oh, okay. Um, but it's but thank you. <laughs> uh, I I try to spend as much time with them as I possibly can. Right? They're all really busy, and everyone's different. Right? I I let all of them know that I'm there for them all day long. There are certain people on my team who need a meeting with me every single week. There's certain people on my team who need to talk to me every day. There's other people on my team who do really well who I have to go after for updates, right? And that's just sort of the way they work. And so I'm not a big fan of creating rules and then making team members stick by them. I want people to be able to move flexibly to be as successful as they possibly can be. And then they just have to set those expectations for themselves. So like at the end of the year, we'll all have like a goal meeting. And my goal meeting, I don't create numbers. I have them tell me how much money they want to make next year. And they have to make the number. It's not me. If they say like $5, we have to move it up. But they have to set the number. And then we back into that how much they have to sell to get there. That's now their base salary. Everything else they sell above that is bonus. If they sell under the number they just said they want to sell and they don't come talk to me by June or July saying, listen, the year is terrible. New York City real estate market has fallen through the floor, something like that, then they can't be with me. Um, but I talk to my team more than I talk to any other client. And I really view teams as like football teams. You know, I'm awful at every sport known to man, but I do know how football teams work. And it's important that everyone can be their own individual rock star and be successful and be great at what they do. But you're not all going to win unless you're able to play well together and work together and talk to each other and figure it out as obstacles come at you like the New York Jets, you know? I hope that answers the question. I don't know. First, thank you for being here. Uh, I think the yes and figure it out mentality, mindset, very much resonates with most of us in this room because we invented a category 20 years ago, and I think in some ways we're still doing that. Yeah. Um, Personal story, I met Frederick in Starbucks like eight years ago. I'm sorry. I've been here for a while. (laughs) Well, he was- I'm just kidding. He seemed to be a very different person eight years ago than he is on the show today. Yeah. So I was kind of expecting him to be a a douche, and he wasn't. He was very nice. 
Um, but I've been in sales for 20 years and I, I recounted a story to him that I had, I had used a line that I, I heard on the show on a client Oh wow! and it worked. And yeah. the line was, I was working with a very big telecommunications company and the line was, if you have $7 million, you have $8 million. Right? Yes. And I closed an $8 million, $8 million deal. So I owe that to you guys. So thank you. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I have moved out of sales after 20 years and I'm now on a team that's responsible for training 10,000 sellers at Google to sell. And we're at this inflection point between being a trusted advisor and being a competitive seller because it's a oh. very fine balance. What do you think are the most important attributes of a seller as they balance being a trusted advisor and a competitive seller? Endurance, empathy, and enthusiasm. Ooh. Three yeah. E's. I like that alliteration. Yeah, it's in the book. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm buying it. It's, uh, it's like you didn't just tee me up for that. But you did sort of. It's but it's what I look for in every salesperson that I hire, um, and I do that by uh, like they have to have enthusiasm, right? So I ask them to tell me the story about the greatest day in their life, and if they tell me like, well, Christmas when I was ten was great, they cannot work with me, right? Um, they have to have empathy. So um, I tell them that I ask them to tell me about the worst day they've ever had in their life, and if they're like, my dog died, they cannot work with me. Because the ability to be enthusiastic with a client and the ability to empathize with a client are, that's the only way you get sales done. There will always be sales that just come down to numbers. Like there will always be those conversations. And those are great. That's your base salary. Like those, those are the deals that are just gonna happen because the numbers make sense and the product's good. Everything else is empathy, enthusiasm, right? Energy, education, all words that start with E. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you. Hello. Hi. Um, so I'll use this opportunity because I definitely don't have the money to ever work with you directly. <laughs> so if I was an investor and looking for an area in New York yeah. where I'd likely see the most upside in the next five to 10 years, what would you recommend I do? Bushwick. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Bushwick Bedsty, right? I think that Bedsty is already kind of getting expensive um, and people are already trying to go there. I think that Bushwick, anyone who buys in Bushwick today will do incredibly well in five years. Um, and I, yeah, super simple. Do you have any listings? Yes. <laughs> Listen, I am here to sell homes to all of you. <laughs> like let's not, I don't wanna meet any, I'm gonna remember all of you. I don't wanna meet any of you on the street or in Starbucks ever and you're like, oh, I just bought a house but I didn't know if like maybe it was too small for you or I had this friend, no. Like, I am here for a purpose. <laughs> it is to sell all of you homes or help you rent homes, okay? Just I want to make sure that that's super clear. So on the left side, we're going to line up for people that want to buy an apartment. On the right side, we're doing the book signing. Yes. Just so you know. Yes, yes, yes. Ryan, one question. Like, given the variety in your background, mm -hmm. how much in the, like, in your career has it been about what you've wanted to do versus who you want to be? Oh, you Googlers. Um, I made a decision when I was younger, and I think it's, this is important because I talk to a lot of people who have this problem. They want to be a really great ex, right? They want to, like you have a night, like you want to grow up to be like me, like an actor, right? Or you want to grow up to be a successful banker or a successful engineer or something. And then when that doesn't happen, it's like a brick wall to the face and life is over. 
right? And then they go off and do something else. Like there's a lot of people who run into those situations where their whole life they wanted to do something because they wanted to be that person. Um, but for me, I, whether it sounds crazy or not, like I always just, I wanted to be successful. Like I wanted to squeeze as much out of life as possible because I knew life was short and I knew that I didn't want to leave potential on the floor. Like I didn't want to be in the cemetery and be one of those people who's like, well, if he'd only just done X, Y, and Z, we might know that he did that, right? And so I chose success first, career second. Um, and that's an important thing to put out there because a lot of people think it sounds weird and crazy and that it doesn't make sense. But if you choose career first, like, I, I, I could have done that with acting and I wouldn't be here today and I'd still live in my 300 square foot apartment at 38 West 31st Street sharing a bathroom with 17 people. Not that that's a bad thing. Um, it's an honorable thing maybe, but it's, it wasn't what I wanted for myself and I wanted to have a better quality of life because again, life is super short. Um, so I chose success first, career second. And I think when people do that, then when things don't work out, like when I was killed off on As the World Turns, right? Um, like it wasn't this brick wall that I was hitting when my life was over and I had to move home. It was, okay, so that career didn't work out. Let's see what else works. And real estate sounds awful and real estate brokers are the worst people ever, but you know what? Maybe I'll try to change that and figure it out and do it in a different way. And does that answer your question? Definitely, thanks. Okay, <laughs> got it. All right. Sometimes I just start going off in my head. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here. Big fan. No problem. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe share about your castmates on the show. Oh. You know, you've had some friendships, not friendships. Yeah. Are you, would you consider them friends now and maybe something like unexpected about um, the other brokers who appear on the show? Um, listen, I have been on the show from the beginning with Frederick. And so we have a love-hate relationship. Like we are, we're competitors. We go after the same projects, the same listings all the time. And... It took us a while to figure out, but I think in the last couple years, maybe it's just because we're getting older, like we just realized that we're a lot more alike than we thought. Um, I think I'm better, but <laughs> it's, you know, we're, we're both equally competitive and we want to do as best as we possibly can. Um, but we're also like in this crazy thing together, you know, like it's. Like that show, like at least when it first came out, like it was watched by 25 million people around the world. And that's like crazy to us, you know? Like I get, we get fan mail from like Korea and Iran. Like that, how those people would ever know that I'm a real estate broker is beyond me. And I would never be able to afford that type of advertising. Um, and so, listen, Frederick and I are friendly now, um, and, but we're still very competitive. Um, I haven't talked to Michael Lorber in forever. He was season one. Luis, I talked to uh, a lot more now than I have in a long time. And he's actually back in the city. And I haven't told anyone yet, but I'll tell people at 3 p.m. on Instagram. He's going to moderate my book signing at Barnes & Noble on Thursday. And it's going to be his first public appearance in like two years. Um, and I've always been close to Luis and he was at my wedding and everything. And then Steve, Steve is new. Steve's super pretty. Um, <laughs> And so, yeah, but Steve's great. Steve, he's a total sweetheart. Um, he's great at what he does. Uh, he's a lot more sensitive than people probably think. Um, yeah, I don't know if I have like any. Did you try 
and get him to join your team? I did. We filmed. They filmed a scene with me after town crumbled um, of me trying to get him to come to the team and figure that out because I thought it would work. You know, like with Frederick, it wouldn't work. But with Steve, I thought we could probably do more together than separate. And he thought about it. And then Corcoran just made him a really great offer. And then they just cut that whole scene. <laughs> yeah. And that's reality TV. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So on behalf of the 10,000 potential sales that are in this building. And yes. The building, um, Let's thank do it. You. Thank it's you. It's been great having you. Um, Definitely, we'll have people lining up to, to have you sign their book. Oh, yeah, I'd love um, to. You can clearly follow Ryan on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and his YouTube channel, which highlights a day in the life of Ryan, which is actually um, interesting to watch as well. So, good. Thank, thank you. you. Great having you. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback on this or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit g.co slash talks at Google slash podcast feedback to leave your comments. To discover more amazing content, you can always find us online at youtube.com slash talks at Google, on our website, google.com slash talks, or via our Twitter handle at Google Talks. Talk soon. <laughs>